Welcome to More Than Work, the podcast reminding you that your self-worth is defined by more than your job title. I'm Rabia, an IT project manager, comedian, nonprofit volunteer, and sometimes activist. Every week, I'll chat with a guest about pursuing passions outside of work or creating meaningful opportunities inside the workplace. As you listen, I hope you'll be inspired to do the same. Welcome back this week, everyone. I'm really excited about my guest. I usually am, but uh, this this is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to talk about one of my favorite things, which is Mexican food and music, uh, or so two of my favorite things, actually. So I have Miguel Buenuelos, owner of Salsa Pistolero in New York City. So Miguel, welcome to the More Than Work. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. And um, do you just want to tell people a little bit about who you are, and then we'll get into things? Sure. Uh, my name is Miguel Banuelos. I'm originally from Texas, uh, San Antonio to be exact, and moved to New York City about almost, I guess it's just past 19 years now, uh, coming on my 20th year. And I came here originally to do music industry, did that for about eight to 10 years, switched over to mobile, digital, creative, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, after a while, kind of got sick of that and figured out that there was something that I had to offer New Yorkers that other people didn't, and that was Mexican food. Launched that about five years ago. It's not been easy by any stretch of the imagination, but, uh, you know, I'm still here. I'm still alive. And so, you know, that, that counts for something. Yeah, no, it definitely. Well, this year it does for sure, right? Uh, yeah, and I mean, we first met when you were in the app space. I was a product manager for a mobile app, and um, I think we were just talking to you about marketing, probably. But yeah, now I mean, now you have salsa pistolero, so maybe let's just jump into that first and just talk about that. So uh, your company has some cool marketing, but first, why don't you just um, maybe tell our listeners how you went from all those things into the food space and into your company? For me, it was very much, like I said, I'd kind of gotten sick of the the world that I kind of put myself in. So I'm not going to act like I, I didn't choose to do that and that I couldn't do it. You know, I, I had been, I the way that I kind of put my foot into the music world was via digital, online, all that stuff. I was very early into that world. I'd been doing web design in college for work. So that's, you know, I've been doing that. I think like in 99, I was doing web design for literally anything from rock bands in DC to mm-hmm. uh, seafood restaurants in, in Arizona. You know, it was just the beginning of that world. I started with a startup at the, around the same time with the same guy who ran the, the web design company. So again, this is 99, 2000, I was in the startup world already. So I used that to get into the music space uh, and then flipped it and went back to more digital using music as a as a, a, a plank of the things that I was offering, right? So mm-hmm. after doing that, you know, I got deeper and deeper into the digital world. So it was app design and app uh, kind of management uh, all the way to mobile advertising and agencies and gaming and production and product management, project management, uh, a little bit of everything. And again, it wasn't that I was ever against that, but 
after a while, it kind of weighed on me a little bit more. And I was like, I just, Mm -hmm. I I don't want to do this right now. I'm kind of done with it. Um, And I tried to be, you know, as uh, responsible as I could. And I was working at a a consulting firm, consulting for them, uh, doing big, big projects like AIG level stuff mm-hmm. and Kaiser Permanente and huge things like that, which were, were really definitely interesting. Like, you know, I got to go to Japan to do a, a hackathon to knock out five apps prototypes overnight, uh, dealing with an India side of production and the San Francisco design and a, the, the team in Tokyo. And so, you know, that was great and super interesting. But again, I knew I kind of wanted to go. And so I kind of, I forced myself, I said, you know, I'm giving myself another year. And at the end of that year, hopefully I have, you know, things, at least a bank account that will handle a little while of, of no income. Um, so I did that. I just kind of gave myself a date. And even, you know, they on their side, not to speak ill of anyone, but a lot of what they kind of were doing in terms of their business model was much more about headcount than it was about mm-hmm. producing great work. Not that the work was bad, but it was that they, they were... They were more worried about losing headcount people sitting in the the shop to be able to charge than they were about, you know, losing me for the project. And I was like, you know what? I understand that. That's fine. But I, I, if I just stay here for the money, I'm going to keep staying here for the money and I need to, you know, kind of set myself a goal. So I did that. And then I, I thought during that time period, what am I going to do otherwise? Uh, and one of the main things that was the driver for me to do the Mexican food stuff, I guess were two. One, there were so many things that I wanted Mexican food-wise that I was used to from mm-hmm. both San Antonio, Southern Texas, but also from Northern Mexico, which is where my family's all from, um, because New York doesn't really have that. Like we have plenty of people from Oaxaca and from Puebla, but that food is completely different. You know, that's, I always tell people, it's like, imagine if someone told you that Chicago style pizza is the only kind of American food there is. Like it's, it's a, it's a giant country with all these different things. And so when people say, Oh no, there's tons of Mexicans in New York. I'm like, yeah, they are, but they're mostly from Puebla or Mexico city. And that's just not what I am looking for, what I wanted not to, Mm -hmm. you know, diss anything from that stuff, but it's, you know, not my thing. So the second thing that I leaned on or as, as an idea for my push to do that was I wanted to, like I said before, that job that I was doing last was very much about headcount rather than about me. Uh, and uh, not in a pompous way, but more in a, you know, I've been around the block a few times and I know some things mm-hmm. and, and I've worked at all these agencies that would bring in experts to do X, Y, and Z, whatever they, that was. And I thought, you know, there are things that I know that I've experienced, that I've been through, that I've learned, be it from the cooking side, the travel side, the business side, that other people don't know how to do. So maybe it's time for me to, you know, maximize the skills that I have that no one else has. You know, and it's not mm-hmm. it's not that I'm better than anyone, but I thought, you know, I'm kind of a unique property in New York City in the things that I know and do. And therefore, there are probably a lot of people who need those skills or need that, you know, uh, consulting or recommendations or whatever it is. Uh, and I should be able to exploit that. If I'm going to be exploited, I might as well exploit myself kind of thing. <laughs> uh, and so I kind of focused on that and thought, you know, I it's so much I always tell people after I made that decision, it was so much easier to get up 
at six in the morning to be in the kitchen at 6.30 to do something that I like doing that was exactly the kind of thing that only I could deliver than it was to be on a conference call, to be on with China, to talk about stuff that really didn't matter to me in any way. You know, so that kind of gave me a reason or, or it reinforced the reasoning behind the idea of like, you know what, I need to focus on the things that I can do because there are plenty of things that I can do. And, and you know, much to the point of what we're talking about, a lot of times what I've found, and this is the thing that I've pushed, that's been the most uphill push for me, is other people's lack of imagination about mm. what I can help them with. So mm. that's everything. Like, if you look at my LinkedIn or my resume or talk to me, you know, it's easy to pull one thing out and be like, oh, Miguel does Mexican salsa. That's what he knows. That's right. what he delivers. And that is true. But, you know, I try to expand people's understanding of that or understanding of what I'm offering and saying, well, that's true. I can also cater an event for you or I can create a playlist for you or I can help you with, uh, you know, finding tastemakers that fit your brand or doing translations for your for your website. If you're trying to, you know, garner more attention from Latinx millennials versus just a translation that you would get from putting your website through Google Translate. Uh, so it, that kind of thing, while it's a little esoteric and a little bit hard, mm -hmm. a little bit squishy, you know, kind of hard to get your head around. I found that if you're, if you as a person looking to hire someone, if you have some imagination, you might be able to get a lot of interesting things from me that other people won't be able to get you. You know, like the fact that I ran mobile advertising platform for Ericsson is just as interesting as running all of the new media for V2 Records for two years. So like that, those two things are not separate and they're not the same, but they're part of this package that somehow, you know, informs things. Yeah, and I, I think what I like about all of that at this point is you identifying your own value and being able to articulate it. Because I think what happens, and I can speak from my personal experience, having been at some places for eight years, for example, well, only one place for eight years, because otherwise, if I say several, I'm like older <laughs> than I am, but <laughs> you know, but I think I started to definitely lose who I was and what value I had. I thought, well, now I'm only capable of doing X, Y, and Z at this specific place, rather than, you know, infinite things at any place. You know, and I think that's what a lot of people end up encountering after a while, especially when they're going to try to make a career or a job change. It just there's this whole barrier of getting past how you think others see you versus what's what's true. Well, you know? th there's that. And the thing that I found as well, especially working in music industry and like when I went to Ericsson in the first place, I was told, like, the reason we're hiring you is because you can go out to concerts three or four times a week and stay out till God knows what hour, but you can still show up for a 9am meeting and be totally, you know, ready to go and present to C-level people that only work in mobile and have no idea about music. Like that's why we're hiring you. And while that's, that's great. I love that, that that's why I was getting paid at the same time. I was like, so you want me to be able to do all the stuff on the side and that's why you're bringing me in but you're not really paying me to do that, right? Like I do that on my own time and you want me to be that kind of full, interesting, well-rounded person, but that's not that's not what's on the payroll. 
And so mm-hmm. I kind of got to the point where I was like, you know, if I'm doing that, I should get paid for that, right? That's part of the package that you're actually getting with me, whether or not you, I mean, if I got a, if I got a job, just, you know, developing web pages, if I could still do that, uh, you know, that's a different job and, and that's fine, but you are getting paid for that specific thing. And so I, I found that that was, again, a catalyst for moving. I was like, well, if I'm going to do all this stuff to make myself more interesting and better well-rounded in terms of creative and culture and all this stuff, then I should get paid for all of that, not just part of it. That is true. And it's, and again, it's just knowing like your value across the board, not just in that one area. That's, I like that a lot. So, and also I'm sure doing it, it's empowering what you want to do, right? Like I didn't want Mm -hmm. to do what I wanted to do. I I, I hate the idea of doing what I want to do after hours. Yeah. Like I got tired of that. That's not, I don't, while on the one hand, I I will give people props. My, My girlfriend is great at that. Like she absolutely 100% believes at 5.30, it's over. She's done. She's not working after Mm. that. And she does everything she wants on other hours and it's fine. And it gives her a good rigid kind of of schedule for her life. And she's not the kind of person that opens her emails up on Saturday and responds to people. It's like, nope, it's not happening. That's great. I'm not like that. (laughs) And I will work 24 hours a day if you're sending me emails. Again, especially working in the digital world, like I was getting questions from Sweden at, you know, yeah. three in the morning. I was getting questions from India. Like there was no, I, I, I tried to explain to people early on when I started working with them with those kinds of offshore teams or whatever, like, look, here's the way I run things as a product or project manager or whatever. I would always say the thing that I'm going to do for you is at the end of my day, I'm going to ask every single question in an email that I need answered. If you can go to your email in the morning, see those questions and answer them for me and have any questions ready for me by the end of your day, we're set. Nothing will be delayed. It'll be great. We'll be totally on time. If you don't do that one day, we're basically losing a day's worth of work every time you don't Mm -hmm. do that. And that was mainly for the workflow of, you know, global workplace, Mm -hmm. but also just to keep everyone sane. I didn't want them to have to answer emails at 11 p.m. You know, like that's right. it's part of the respect of that space that you have to do that. And it's just too hard to get people that way. Like, again, it's not even like people are begging you to do it, but it's just human nature for a lot of people. If, mm-hmm. if an email comes through at 10 p.m. and I'm checking my email and I know that I just need to answer yes or no, I probably will. That's not good if I'm not, if I, if I'm not getting paid for that. Right. And that's, I mean, that's great boundary setting because I, I've read a couple articles and about just how, even if you, as a, as a manager, and it doesn't mean manager of people, but manager of project, whatever, if you send emails at crazy times, cause you're working those crazy times and they could be crazy because you want to work at midnight or you feel like you have to, or because you're in a different time zone than someone else. But when you send something, even if you say, don't look at this until morning or this isn't until Monday. It doesn't matter because they're immediately like having that cognitive response of, Oh, I have an email. I have to read it. I have to answer it. And even if you say they don't, it doesn't really matter because it's, it's been kind of set off. And so people do things like set timers, but I like that as a workflow too. And I mean, I, I'm a project manager during the day and I'm kind of 
um, doing the thing right now where I'm doing a lot of my fun or like really passion stuff at night, like <laughs> podcasting, volunteering and comedy. Right. And then I'm working a full-time day job. So I completely relate with what you said, but there's also that thing of, yeah, I'll see emails come in and feel like I need to answer them or vice versa. And it's a really hard thing to do. So that as a workflow is really, was really smart. And, and it was like a kind thing to do for everyone too. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, it really, the other thing is, one of the reasons I do that and I've asked people to do that kind of thing is just ask the questions at the end of the day is it's just as much kind of workflow global time frame. Again, you don't want to lose a full day because somebody didn't answer something you needed, but it's also to combat that reactive email response thing mm-hmm. because, and I, cause I've learned to do this myself just in life. Now there are emails that I will get that are work-related or whatever, even personal, whatever, that I'll see. And I'll be like, I can answer this right now. But if I think about it for 15 minutes or half an hour or maybe even three hours later, something might change in the conversation. Mm -hmm. Either they got something wrong and they want to change their mind or I had something pop up and, you know, I have to change it. I'll even give you a really good example. For this call, I had chosen the time just like we were supposed to, like we decided on the calendar app and everything was fine. And then I got an email yesterday, like last night, late, like at 11, like, Oh, you have a, a call to be on from two to four now. And I was like, okay, so what can I do here? I actually sent an email to another person on that call. I said, this looks like a similar call to last week's call is this the same call do i need to be on again and they were like i don't know they might cover new things you might need to be on and i thought okay so what do i do do i change the the reservation time that i had for this or do i wait Uh it out and i was like you know what i'm gonna wait this out because anything could change right now i've got a long time i will rsvp for the other call and say i'll be there but you know things could change and of course i log on to the call at two and it's the same exact call as I had last Monday. So I didn't have to do it. And I was like, you know what? If I just responded quickly and reacted and said, oh, I got to change that time because I've got another booking. It does. Yeah. Like, there's something to be said, especially in the, this world of reactive kind of uh, reservations of times to just kind of wait it out a little bit. Like I, th- there was enough of a window that anything could change at any moment and it would just exacerbate everything if I didn't wait just, you know, a few hours. And so yeah. like that's the thing is I, I I don't I think that the the functional style of email mm-hmm. makes it so you want to get it out, respond, get it done. And that's not always the best policy. And if you wait, usually and again if it, it's not like there wasn't going to be a difference for you for our time for me to tell you either yeah. way. Right. And unless I had to tell you and reschedule or something and I knew it was like a bad thing, then I would have had to done that and I would deal with the consequences of that. But there was always a good chance it wasn't going to happen that way. So I feel like that's one of the things that I try to explain to people, especially with business stuff or or development or, or project stuff is, you know, if I have something to answer at nine, it might be different by 11. And those two hours mm-hmm. aren't going to kill anybody. And in fact, there's a much better chance that by 1030, I'll get an email saying, oh, you know what? Forget about that. That changed. Yeah. Somebody responded to something and now it's different. So 
I, I feel like that was also another reason for that world. But if you if you wait till the end of the day, then you know, in theory, because you know people, but in theory, that should be the end of your day. Nothing is going to change for you after that point. So you should have mm -hmm. all the real questions you need. And uh, and that allows you to shut off. Like, I'm not expecting an answer till the next morning. That's fine. Don't yeah. respond. It's good. Just wait until your end of the day. And then when India's end of the day comes, by the time I check my email, oh, okay, there's a new email. Now we've got the ball rolling. And it kind of keeps everyone honest as well. No, so I really like that. And I even just talking to friends, I mean, about how their workday goes. Sometimes you'll chat with them during their workday. And I have one friend who just said, he got an email and then right after got a Slack telling him <laughs> that he got an email, you know, exactly. and he's just like, I don't, that's fine. You know, there was no urgency. There's no reason to send the double communication, but stuff like that, that just drives people nuts. So it's good to find good ways of communicating. Well, and it's also just rules, right? It's simple. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the kind of thing that, and again, it, I don't mean it in, like you said, my management terms, but mm -hmm. If you get people that rule, then you can also kind of use that rule against them, not in a bad way, but in a in a basic rule setting way of like, well, I'm sorry, you didn't ask me that question at the end of the day, and I could have gotten it for you in time, but you didn't. And I can't, I have other, I have 17 other questions that were asked to me that were on time. And that will mm -hmm. push you to the end of that line or the day is gone. Like I, I can't. Like a lot of this would happen. Like I can't get back to India now because China didn't ask me the question when they were done with their day. So now yeah. India is not going to be there now because it's just, you know, it's 10 o'clock. It's 10 a.m. my time. They're gone. Their day is done. There's no way for me to get that day back. And so you kind of use that. And a lot of times it's not lip service, but it's kind of client control. A lot of times yeah. you're like, look, this is how business works. You have your designers asked me this question. That was fine. I sent it to my designers. They're working on it. That they sent it to the developers. They're working on it. You're trying to stop the train now. When I gave you kind of specific guidelines about these kind of deliveries, it's not like I'm just being mean. There, it's a train. Mm -hmm. There are things that are you know in front of me and things that are in back of me, and that's how these things work. So you can kind of use it both as a it's a punishment as well, but it's much more just, it's, uh, you know, setting guidelines, setting those bumpers for, for yeah. work, period. And I guess before we move off this subject and get into the the food part mm -hmm. of the chat, one thing I noticed changing, and I'm not working very much with teams in India right now, but one thing I noticed changing when I was, I was in at a company in Dallas for a little while, the there's a power dynamic shift I've noticed where say 15 years ago, right. When I was at an American company and we had outsourcing in India, you could kind of say, well, work 24 hours a day over there. And I don't not, I'm not saying I liked that. Cause I didn't, I don't like treating people like they're not people, right. but I did have a manager who was like, well, they can work any hours and they can extend their day. And it was like, well, they have families and stuff. They being people mm -hmm. have families. They get hungry, whatever. And I noticed maybe five years later and probably even more now, it's like, no, people are working their work days. So this is the work day in India. That's when the people are working. This is the work day in Asia. This is the work day in America. Now I'm in, in England and they have, they definitely work 
uh, shorter hours and <laughs> well, <laughs> you can't. You know, that's another thing. It's like the, and it's good. I, I, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think a lot of people assumed otherwise, but the culture differences with the way that people mm-hmm. work, and I'm, I'm not making value judgments on it, but the way that people work uh, has to be dealt with, right? Like that's another mm-hmm. plank. Like I've, I've explained to people, if you as a company decide to offshore, you know, development or design or whatever it is, uh, you can't assume that it's done the same way there as it is here. And I don't mean anything mm-hmm. from like the look and feel of it or the quality, but more like a good example, when I was working at Ericsson, they decided to offshore a bunch of their development back office stuff to Brazil. Uh, because their thinking was, well, it's closer in time zone compared to some of the other places we work on. It's only like one hour ahead or whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, they've been wanting to expand in Ericsson in Brazil for a while anyway. So we'll do that. I'm like, okay, cool. And one of the interesting things we realized, and again, this is not a value judgment, but they have a thousand holidays in Brazil. Yeah. Like, oh, so we my. work with Argentina. <laughs> yes, exactly. So actually, well, not work with, but I mean, it's our team is Argentina, US and a couple other places. Right. right. So yeah, I know because we get jealous. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, oh, sorry, we've got the Saints Day today. We can't work. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I'm like, three days later, oh, yeah, got another day off. Sorry. And then Friday, mm-hmm. we're taking off early. We're just having a big cookout. That's what we do. And so it was like, you know, you couldn't say anything about it because that's their country. Like they're literally just taking their federal holidays. Uh, but it's those kind of things where, again, if you don't set those rules and guidelines and boundaries for your own mental sake, as well as just for, you know, a basic internal flow, then really all bets are off because, you know, they may not be working for the next three days. And it's just because it's the summer midweek break week that week and so it just happens and it happened last week and it happens next week and you know you're you're yeah. you're tied to that but you know there's a, a basic level of it whereas like i said it seems very stringent it's much more kind of uh fair and again helpful yeah. rather than difficult no yeah and it's it's really cool getting to work i mean i'd say you know usually 60 to 70 percent of the team's I have on projects will be from Argentina or from over here, um, just especially on my projects now. And I think it's, it's cool because I get the chance to usually learn about another culture. I get to actually learn how to work more efficiently too, because I'm constrained to, you know, working within these times and then they're in these other times. And I don't know, it's kind of fun, but I, I did notice a shift in like the U S determining when everyone worked at some point. And that was it was kind of, I don't know. It was kind of fascinating, really. And sometimes I've, I've like even leaned on people to, to push back to us. Like mm-hmm. we had a team in, when I was doing that last consulting job, uh, our development team was in uh, Bulgaria, I think, somewhere like that. Mm. And they were like all super service type spot and they were really great at what they did and they, you know, could add or subtract uh people as need be they were big enough to have that kind of workforce and they were always ready they were like oh if you need more people we'll get them off we need people overnight i'm like no don't say that (laughs) whether or not i can afford it whether or not we want to like no i don't want anybody this dumb site does not require you to be up till four in the morning like it's not a big deal but they all wanted to do that i was like no 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 that's not cool like i don't need that you don't need that that's it's it's too far yeah, it is. It is. All right, let's get let's get to what you're doing now. So um I guess first, I mean, I 
so I read a lot of what you've written on Medium. I like your voice there for sure. Oh, thanks. I like what you're doing. It's a, it's yeah, a little controversial. I mean, it's, it's a little pointed. I like, yeah. Yeah, no, and that's what I like. I mean, I, I could talk about actually a lot of it, but I think just even like there's not real Mexican food here or whatever, that kind of statement. I mean, I'm in London, not the Mecca of Mexican food for sure. Although I did find two restaurants I want to give a shout to. So there's one called Mestizo and they have a market next door. So if you are ever over here, it's in Camden. It's really kind of, it's cool. And I bought tamales that I brought home. They're frozen. I had them last, last night, actually some, and it's amazing. And so I was really happy that, and then there's one called Corazon. So they're great, but overall, yes, I've been someone who said that when I lived in New York. Mm -hmm. And so two things, one, just briefly what you think about someone saying Mm -hmm. that, right. But then two, I want to know about your salsa and kind of your cooking and what you're doing. So the reason I started it, like I said, was because I couldn't get what I wanted. Right. Uh, And that's why it was funny because after having worked and lived here for so many years, you know, I I had found people and places and and Mexican stuff that I needed, you know, that I could make do with Mm -hmm. what I wanted. Um, And by my correlation also, when I started doing this, I started working in kitchens more, obviously. And so I started, you know, interacting with more Mexicans because every single restaurant in New York City, I don't care what kind of food it is, it is being cooked mm-hmm. by Mexicans, unless it's a Chinese place, in which case it's probably Chinese, as well as Vietnamese and Korean, they're all Chinese in the kitchen. That's just how it is. <laughs> it's just a fact of life in New York City. So yeah, uh, with that kind of idea, dealing with learning all these that all these people were here uh what i saw was at the one at one point yes people are right if you want if you're from southern california or from texas or even anywhere in the south really and you come to new york there is no mexican food here comparatively absolutely mm-hmm. that's just a fact but new york is enormous right and there are just billion people here, whatever. It's just so big. And so what you have to do is put in the legwork, right? You've got to find those places. You've got to, you know, I, I, I forced it upon myself. It's like, okay, I'm going to go pound the pavement. I'm going to go walk up to, or I'm going to take subway up to 116th street and walk mm-hmm. the six avenues from east to west to find out what there is. And it's all Mexican everything. I'm going to go to Corona Queens. I'm going to go to, you know, the, the food fairs out there. I'm going to go to the, the Red Hook ball fields where they have all of the, the mm-hmm. carts. They're all Mexican, right? So they're, they're out there. They're there. They're, they, they have lives. They have families. They have the things that they've built to support those people. Again, they may work at 11 Madison Park or at the Shake Shack or wherever, but they still have their own needs when it comes closer to home, right? So the idea that there's no Mexican food is at once totally true and absolutely not true. But the weird thing for me or the reason that the, the raison d'etre of everything for my move to the food stuff was, again, but it wasn't mine. You know, it, it wasn't what I wanted. and It wasn't like I was totally cool with, you know, the uh, mole from Puebla, but that's not where I'm from. So I, I was never a huge mole guy. Not that I dislike it. It's just not at the top of my list. Um, people here do a lot of um, barbacoa, 
but they do lamb barbacoa, which is a southern thing. My family's all from the north, and in the north we do cow. So there's beef rules everything, right? And so I noticed these differences, and I was like, you know, while there's plenty of Mexican here, there's not plenty of what I want. And so maybe I can, uh, I guess the way I, I always explain it is there was as much food, um, just the actual thing, the actual you know offering of food to people that was specific, but also the education of the fact that they, they're not the same thing. Food from Mexico in the north is not the same as the Yucatan. It's not the same as the West Coast. It's not the same as Mexico City. It's not the same as the interior. You know, all those things, they're regions, right? It's I, I, I always compare it either to the U.S., if people understand that better, but if you're more of a food, food person, it's like Italy. I think Italy and Mexico have totally the same thing. Like, they're a bunch of different states that have all these different natural resources and natural, you know, environments and terroirs. And those things inform the local food more than anything else. Sure, there's tradition. Sure, there's a long background. But it really comes down to basic things that have happened in that area that have changed the way that food is made in that area. And those areas are more important than the overall thing, right? Like, you mm -hmm. can't compare Northern Italian food to Sicilian food. They're just so totally different. Like you've got stuff from the Alps. It's basically Austria. And you've got so many delicious cheeses and butter and potatoes and all these wonderful things that would never, ever happen in Sicily because it's all fish, you know, and, and mm -hmm. it's red sauce. And it's, you know, all these things are so different. Um, and so a lot of the thinking I had was, you know what? I want to do my food because I want my food. But it's also a, a, a launching pad to explain to people these differences and even kind of more, not just regional differences, but um, kind of ethical differences or, or maybe not ethical, but um, kind of ways of life. Like one of the things mm -hmm. I always tell people is the reason I started making salsa was because one, I couldn't find good salsa. But two, I don't pe think people understand what salsa is supposed to be. You know, it, I always tell people, if you buy a jar of salsa and the onions are kind of blue and you have it in your your pantry for, you know, three or four weeks before you open it, that's not salsa. That's not good. That's a bad thing. No one in Mexico ever eats salsa like that. That just doesn't exist. And the reason is because you make it. You make it right before you eat. You make it for the beginning of the week. Like my mom would basically make like two liters of red salsa every Sunday mm -hmm. for the whole week. And you just have the salsa in the fridge all the time for whatever, for breakfast, lunch, dinner, snack, whatever. It's always there. Like it's just your basic food prep for the week. That's just a staple mm -hmm. you have. And so I try to explain to people like, try it this way. Try a fresh salsa and see what you think. Because I don't know that you've ever had something like this unless it's at a restaurant. And even then I found that they are, you know, well, I can get into that later, but uh, <laughs> the, uh, the idea, I've often had people come, like, taste it at a tasting or an event or something and be like, oh, my God, why is your salsa taste so different? And I was like, because I just made it. That's all. It's just, <laughs> yeah. I just made it and it's just vegetables. That's all there is. There's nothing else in there. There's nothing preserving it except for maybe some salt and that's it. So, like, that kind of educational base was, was kind of where that whole uh, arm or column of what I'm offering to people is. It's like, look, the salsa is supposed to be fresh. That's a difference. 
you know, this kind of music is only for the North. People in the South don't listen to this kind of music. That's just a little educational thing for you. You know, whatever it is, those things led to this whole, you know, branch of what I do. And I've done like some online kind of little classes about everything from making tortillas to making uh, cocktail mixers to, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that, again, is just kind of innate knowledge that I've come across that other people don't have. So I figure why not offer that to people? But what I've found even more so, and this is kind of what added to me pushing on this side, is that while doing these things, I keep finding that people are kind of starving for even more basic knowledge and understanding about food and how to eat and how to make food. Like I did a little, I keep doing these little, I have done and plan to do more kind of little 30 minute Instagram sessions focused on something really specific. Mm -hmm. So I did a little 30 minute session on everything that you need to know about onions because people don't know how to buy onions. People don't know the difference in taste of onions. People don't know, you know, some basic rules about how to find a fresh onion, how to not cry when you're chopping onions. Like those to me are now second nature because I've been cooking my whole life. But I realized when I was doing salsa classes, people were like, oh, wait, why don't you use this kind of onion instead? And I was like, oh, well, it's because of this. Oh, how do you not cry while you're chopping onions? Oh, well, that's because of this. Like, So there were all these things that grew out of that space. And I was like, oh, you know, I realized again, via experience and time, that I had this knowledge that other people just never came across. And so whenever I do things, I'm like, your grandmother should have taught you this, but you were too busy out on the streets with your friends not learning how to pick a good onion in the supermarket. So I'm going to teach you how to pick a good onion. So it's like those things uh, only added to kind of the offering because, you know, I just noticed people needed it. Th those are, those are great because I'm just, I'm just picturing myself making salsa like a week ago. So I visited a friend, she lives in Bristol, which is like, say, you know, on the West coast of here of England. And she's Mexican from Southern California. So when I was visiting, because of co it was a safe time to visit during COVID, but we didn't want to go out a lot anyway. And so she made like these amazing meals. And one of the things she did was she's like, well, I'm going to make salsa, you know, because we're going to buy salsa. She goes, you know what? No, I have an onion at home. Let me make it. And she didn't cry. And the salsa was amazing. And so it inspired me now to every week I make my own, yeah. just a pico, yeah. you know, pico yeah. de gallo style. But I'll cry. And like, if my mom happens to listen to this episode, she'll probably <laughs> laugh just because I'm usually on the phone with her, you know, doing my call to her and I'll be like, Oh, Oh. And like, I'm just you know running around. Like I'm blinded. I'll usually, um, I don't know, maybe you can do a video on reminding people not to touch their eye after a chili. Oh for yeah. Example. That's a handy, that's a handy one, but yeah, so that's really cool. So you're able to incorporate the education part in with that. I, I like your marketing. You have the one button that you made about um, I am Amer I'm an American. I speak English. Mm. Those buttons and so in Spanish. I, I read your story. <laughs> yes, in Spanish. So yeah, like uh, <laughs> yo soy americano. I think yo hablo inglés. Hablo español. Hablo mm -hmm. inglés. Yeah, I was saying yo yeah, hablo yeah. español, which is not true. <laughs> I do not speak Spanish. Yeah, and so when I saw that and not hadn't read your article on it, but just saw it, I was just thinking like. To me, what I saw it as was something like almost an empowering statement because I, I feel like what I observe, and I've probably done, uh, if I just want to be really introspective about myself, is you'll see someone and you'll assume they don't speak English. Right. 
And so it's like them saying, yeah, I do. And, you know, I'm surprised that people can even read the button. Yeah. Honestly, I could, but I took, you know, I took a couple years of Spanish and got in trouble in class and stuff. And so, but for you, what did making that button mean? So there's actually a longer story behind that and I'll try to make it fast. Uh, so there's a book called when Mexicans could play basketball. And it's a, it's a book from the university of Texas press about a high school in San Antonio, where I'm from, where my best friend's uh, father actually went to high school. And it was a vocational school that they started in San Antonio in the 20s or 30s to give Mexicans a place to go to school because they were still segregated and they didn't want them in the white schools in San Antonio. So, And there were so many Mexicans. So they were like, well, Mm -hmm. let's give them a high school. And it'll be a vocational school because they're good with their hands and they can get a good job. You know, all of that thinking. (sighs) Yeah. So reading this book is really interesting because this was the first Mexican team that won the state championship in basketball in Texas and all the trials and tribulations they went through, you know, getting run out of town, getting beaten up, getting chased, like all the bad things that you can imagine in 1940s Texas. Uh, But one of the little things that popped up in the storytelling um, was that there was a rule at the school that you could not speak Spanish on campus. Period. Even though everyone there that worked, everyone that went to school there was Mexican, they were not allowed to speak Spanish. So, what they would do was, as the carrot to keep you, you know, wanting to to do this, at the end of each week, if you hadn't gotten any demerits for speaking Spanish, you got a ribbon or a pin that mm-hmm. says, "I'm an American. I speak English." <laughs> so I thought, you know, what we really should be rewarding is people who are American who can also speak Spanish and what a great pin that would be like, that's awesome. You do both. That's wonderful. And so I thought it was a, a, an interesting flip on what was a pretty tired and terrible thing. Yeah. No, that's really cool because, and I, I have a definite political stance and so I try not to do too much of that on this because that's not what the podcast is about. Um, I'd have to make a different (laughs) podcast, but I do, one thing I do find fascinating, even being here in England now, is that in the U.S., I think we've got to be one of the only countries that doesn't really speak more than one language as a population. I mean, other than people from somewhere else. And then the culture does get stripped. I mean, that's an example where people's language being taken from them basically by through punitive means is awful because, you know, I so I want to talk about tacos up as store, actually, because I'm half Lebanese mm-hmm. and I was fascinated to find out those are from Lebanon. Yeah. But before that. I will say, like, I wasn't raised by my dad, my biological dad, who was Lebanese. So I don't have any of that culture. And I feel like that's just such a as I've gotten older, it's 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 a big hole for me. And it's something that's so absent. And I can't imagine if I had learned a language and I wasn't allowed to speak it. I just think that's. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't know if I have a point other than to say I think that's really awful. And even here, a lot of people, you know, they learn French or something. The Brits do, but still, they learn another language. I mean, I for me, the thing that I I I try to explain it in a non political way, in a basic understanding of why wouldn't you want to enrich yourself on a basic mm-hmm. level, like. You like to learn things, right? You like to read. It's a wonderful thing. You watch a movie and you learn about something. Like, that's a great thing. Speaking a language is just another one of those amazing tools to be able to take into the world. Like, there's no reason anyone should say, don't learn something. 
Like, that just seems so backward. Yeah. Whether or not it's a language or cooking or art or whatever it is, people should learn all the things they can learn. And so the idea that somehow there's a sense that that could be a negative on a basic human level doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And the fact, too, I think comes into play where when English is a second language for people, what I observe is people get embarrassed that they don't speak it well enough or something. And I'm like, you're speaking more than one language. This is your second one. You're actually spelling things better than a lot of American people do. Like, please don't look at it that way. Please look at it as you're showing everybody this amazing respect by speaking their language for them because they can't. And I also think the other thing too, is that it kind of, it adds two things. It adds a little bit of humility, like you said, Mm -hmm. but it also adds like a, uh, at least for me, because this, this holds for me and not for my girlfriend, but this is just the way it is. <laughs> and again, she actually speaks uh, English, Spanish, pretty good French. Uh, and we've both been learning right. a bit of Italian because we love going to Italy. We go to Italy every other year. But like, because I have Spanish and English fluently and I talk through those, when it comes to Italian, I have zero fear. I just throw it out there. I don't care if it's right or wrong. I'm just trying my best to communicate the, the thing that I need to communicate. And I'm like, look, I already know two other languages. I figure between the two, I can get the right answer in Italian out to you somehow. And that's fine. My my aim is communication. My aim is not to be the best Italian speaker speaking flowery, perfect Italian. I don't really care. I just want a beer right now. Or I want this kind <laughs> of sandwich. So like for me, it adds that like, you know, a, a recklessness of just just throw it out there it's language it's fine yeah. it'll get there You'll, as long as you get what you need you're fine and i think a lot of people when it's only one language they understand or know um there's that fear like well what if i say the wrong thing like yeah people say all the wrong things all the time it's fine yeah i mean i record myself saying the wrong thing exactly. all the time it's fine it's not gonna it's not gonna <laughs> it's, okay. it's not the end of the world it's fine no nothing's gonna happen so when you look at your company you have now that, that you're running, I mean, what's been kind of the biggest surprise or biggest learning to you going into food and maybe just going into having a product like this versus a digital product, which you've worked with a lot, right? Well, the, the odd thing is more like I'm doing something that's purposefully off. It's a little bit different from what people are used to. It doesn't really make sense to a lot of people because it's not uh, it's not what they think it is. And I used to say it's kind of a bait and switch, but it's not really that. I like, like I said before, my business, what I make money on is totally varied. It's, it's not just one mm-hmm. thing. And again, it's hard for a lot of people to get that through their heads and to understand what that means. And that's been the hardest thing, but that's kind of why I started it the way I did. I always... I, I explain it now that the salsa is a tangible thing. You can eat that one thing. I can deliver that to you. You can come and have that at a thing, whatever. You can taste that. And my hope, my assumption is that it makes a difference. It will be different from any salsa you've had before. Hopefully the best salsa you've had, but it will also be unique in your experience. That mm-hmm. tangible thing is my foot in the door to explain to you a bunch of other things. And I even had this on my LinkedIn for a while. Hopefully what happens from whatever area, whatever channel you're coming to me from, whatever your business is, whatever your job is, whatever your, you know, 
cultural circle of friends is, after interacting with the salsa or interacting with me or, or listening to me or reading some of my writing, whatever it is, uh, you come away thinking, Miguel's that Mexican guy. When I need Mexican mm -hmm. things, maybe I'll think of Miguel. And, you know, mm -hmm. that led me to doing, like I said, like I did a Cohen's Fashion Optical needed to do a redesign and a translation of their website. And I happened to have the friend who was running the project on the redesign. And she was like, hey, you speak Spanish, right? I'm like, yeah. She was like, we need somebody to translate the site. Can you do it? You know how, you know, digital online development works. So, you know, kind of how to deal with that. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And that's the kind of thing that's the hardest for me is that explaining that to people that mm -hmm. it may not be, you may not ever work with anything that needs Spanish translation, but you may mm -hmm. meet somebody who is like, oh, you know, I had a friend who his friend runs the auctions at Sotheby's. And he was like, you know what? Mm -hmm. They think that they might be having a Mexican thing coming up in the next few months uh, as one of their big auctions. Could you help? And I'm like, whatever you need, like if it's just making sure the accent marks are in the right place or just reading to make sure that you don't forget an enye because that turns a word from something normal into something dirty. Like that happens all the time. So <laughs> it's like little dumb things like that. I'm like, I'd be more than happy to be the Mexican to overlook, to look over your stuff or like uh, music world friends were like, hey, we've got this new streaming thing. We need some playlists to populate the Latin music section. I'm like, okay, because you came to me, I'm not gonna give you the answer that everybody else would because you're asking me for a reason, right? And she was like, absolutely. And I was mm -hmm. like, how about I do, you know, a playlist for Texas stuff, a playlist for Norteño, Mariachi stuff. But I also wanna do a playlist of like all the Latin music that has come out of New York because it's so mm. important in terms of Latin music period across the board, across genres, and like all those things from hip hop to, you know, soul, salsa, whatever, like all these things are super important. And she was like, absolutely. That's why I asked you to do it. So it's that, like I said, it, it's a lack of imagination on other people's points, but me having to kind of walk them, walk other people, clients, business, whatever, through this idea of, things I can do for you are pretty wide ranging. And the good thing for me, and this is the other thing that I tell people is that one of the reasons I do it that way is because I can sell a jar of salsa for $8, which is very expensive, but it is handmade and it's delicious. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> or I can talk to Diageo for a Don Julio project for an hour and make a thousand dollars. You know, so the elasticity of what I can make money on is so wide ranging that I love that. You know, that's great. It's fun, but I can also, you know, do it for free for someone because I want to help them and their business is new or whatever it is. And so, you know, that is at once the boon, but it's also kind of the, the, the difficulty is that it's not that easy for a lot of people to get their head around that world. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times people just, you know, it's an agency just looking to hire somebody who knows, you know, Latinx singers and they can give, put a list together or just translate this and, that, and that's fine. And there's plenty of business. And I've talked to other kind of Hispanic focused agencies or whatever about jobs. And we always, it's happened like three or four times over the last five years. And we always come out of it the same with the, the agency people being like, you do what we do. You're just one guy. We like you. Basically, are our company. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I am. So they're like, they're like, not that we don't want to hire you, but you, you already you're already doing it. So that's cool. 
And so a lot of it is just yeah. kind of explaining to people how that exists or how that can be a possibility. And so when people don't have something really, really tangent and rigid in terms of your business, it requires a lot of heavy lifting and a lot of imagination. Oops, sorry. Uh, a lot of imagination and a lot of um, explanation and having that kind of patience to explain mm -hmm. to people and get them to the point to the to the point that you want them to be. Because again, they don't have to know everything I do, but if I can find a way to explain it, what happens, the other thing that I've found, and it's both good and bad, is that this process, this explanation, and this kind of early business development side of things weeds out the people who aren't patient and don't want those things. And that's cool with me, because I don't, I don't really want to do those projects anyway. So it helps a lot mm -hmm. in terms of, of deciding what kind of people to work with um and so you know like i said working freelance for a long time or or you know even to separate from the team one of the things you find is that you don't want to waste your time there's a lot of time wasting to be had you know dealing with people and you know after all the freelance stuff i've done and consulting i've done the other thing i've learned is that the people who are really difficult at the beginning they're not going to get better <laughs> they just never do. It's never like two weeks of the project. Like, oh, they're awesome now. They're so easy to work with. That first week was really difficult. No, that's never how it is. They only get worse. It's that saying, right? That people show you who they Absolutely. are. Absolutely. And people get really yeah. drunk on the idea of like, oh, but they've got so much money. They're going to pay so much. I'm like, nope, not worth it for me. Yeah, you get to choose who you want to work with. And, and being to be able to do that and to have the fortitude to say, and I'm doing that. I can choose and I do. That's... It's hard. It's good. <laughs> it's not easy. Like I said, it's been it's yeah. not and it's not been easy five years at all. And it's very uh, feast or famine. You know, you've got to be built for that world. And I mean, I did it for my writing stuff for for years, so I kind of already had a feeling for it. But you know, there is that sense that you know nothing comes for three months. What are you going to do? Like, how are you dealing with that? And that's why, like I said. There are so many things in my portfolio that I'm trying to offer people that I'm like, well, if I can sell X amount of salsa or I can do a couple of pop-up taco events, then I can guarantee myself X amount of money for the month and that should pay all the bills. Uh, yeah. It was when COVID happened that all of that was suddenly taken off the board. And I was like, okay, now 80% of what I do that I make money on is gone. Yeah, looking at COVID, actually, for you, I mean, have you found you had to innovate with your product or as far as the salsa or are you just now kind of doing more of your other services or how's that been? Well, going? I mean, it's, it's still the same in terms of searching basically. So for the first maybe three to five months, so from March, there is no business. Like I, I was about to do a consulting gig uh, like a month and a half before and they were just like, oh, yeah, send a new rate. We'll work it out. We'll, we'll want to get your timing down. So we want to make sure you're available for when we need to deliverable. I'm like, all right, cool. And then COVID happened, and I know they shut down, and that just went radio silent for the next three months. It's still yeah. silent. They've never replied. <laughs> but so that was kind of the writing on the wall. But at the same time, when that happened, it was like, oh, so all of these tentpole events that I had for the year which were food events, which were Austin City Limits backstage, which was the New York oh. Times food event. Like I had these big things that happen every year or that have happened the last few years. I was like, okay. So all of those kind of easy or not even easy, but, you know, booked business 
3,000 here, 5,000 there, 1,000 there, like all those things that were just always there were gone. And then the basic kind of pressing the flesh out there tastings, obviously, off the list. So catering events, off the list. So like all of the things that were kind of out of the big toolbox, all of them were gone. Even the consulting side, because again, they all shut down their businesses or they went into free fall or they were just scared. So they quit everything. Um, So yeah, I I had to kind of, and even the, the, again, the shops that I sell salsa in, they all shut down or were down to skeleton crew or short hours or, and just the foot traffic is nothing now. Um, So really all of my bases were kind of ruined. Um, But the good thing was I kind of already been in this position starting up five years ago. You know, I had nothing and I was working from scratch. So it's like, okay, I'm back to nothing. That's okay. How do we manage this? Um, you know, obviously looked for any relief packages, did all that work, um, talked to people. And it was just kind of little things. It was like, okay, well, I'm going to do a t-shirt drive now and then I'll do a gift certificate drive later. And little mm-hmm. things like that just kind of kept the lights on and kept people paying attention. Um, but also, after those first four or five months, things started slowly opening up again. So I could kind of push that again, give myself a little bit more marketing time and and, and develop uh, more regular kind of people to show up to buy the salsa on the regular, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then because of that change in situation, a lot of the people, I, a lot of the shops I was working with were also looking for new things, right? Like one of my main, or now my main seller is a, a bar. Right near my house. Okay. It's at a restaurant. It's it's not a restaurant. It's a it's a bar, artisanal beers, like twenty on tap, and then they have these big coolers of like every independent brewer in the country, super, super hipster art RD beer stuff. But they also have other food things because the stuff in the front is only to go. You can't drink that on premises. You have to take it. Mm-hmm. So they have a to go business of, of, of beer that's very regular, right? People come in after work every single day and buy a six pack of beer from them. That's always something new and interesting, right? So they've got that kind of traffic. With that, they've added cheeses and charcuterie and, you know, artisanal jarred foods, whatever, um, because people want to make a whole dinner out of it or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Um, they have, you know, bread delivered every day, blah, blah, blah. So they've been selling my salsa forever and using it in their like on-premises food. Um, but they were like, look, we're kind of screwed right now, right? Like people can't sit inside in a bar, period. They're just not, or, or, and their bar is relatively small. So they have like one giant table in the middle and like four mm-hmm. chairs on yeah. the side. They're like, yeah, that just doesn't work and right now. So I said, well, you know, I'm not doing anything and I need the money. So we started doing pop-ups. So I'll do breakfast taco Mm. pop-ups on the weekends and we'll do it in the middle of the day because they basically have zero foot traffic in the middle of the day, much less at night. Um, So they were like, look, if you can do it, you can do whatever you want here. You can have all the space you want. You can have all the time you want. You can do whatever you want, your style. And we're not even going to take a cut. Whatever you sell is yours. We'll just, you know, any beer sells that we get on top of that, you know, we'll, we'll bank that, but we're, we won't even charge you anything. Just do it yourself because again, they're in a a tough spot too. Um, And so those kind of relationships are the ones that are kind of coming through for me and making it worthwhile. Um, And again, I had done a few pop-ups before, but 
not enough to where it was my business. And now it's been my business for a couple of months. Um, and that may change. I don't know. But it's having, you know, again, the imagination, both on the on the client or, or partner side, as well as my own and being like, well, what, what can I do? And what people, what do people want that they'll pay for and go walk outside of their house for right now? Mm-hmm. And is that in Manhattan or in Brooklyn? Manhattan. Manhattan? East Village. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll post that just because, um, you know, we'll post that in the show notes too. And because I have a few friends in New York, I'll tell them, but that's awesome. And again, it's like, you know, yeah. it's, that's where we've been pushed. So we just move, you know, kind of find a way yeah. to make it happen. So, yeah, that's, I mean, that's another thing I'm just getting from you about just kind of being flexible and agile, not agile in the scrum way, but agile in the agile way. Or both. Be agile. Or both. Doing both. Yeah, you can just, you know, have like two minute sprints of tacos. Yeah. I like to waterfall my tacos, um, actually. So before we get to my, like, this fun questions I have, um, tacos al pastor. So the Lebanese can get credit for those. Absolutely. Is that correct? Absolutely. <sighs> Yeah, see, 23 and me makes so much more sense now because of what I like to eat and now. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and that that little tidbit I love to use because it's so interesting, but it's also one of the things that um, I use almost like a a rule, like a like a ruler to smack people with because there is, um, like I said, or like you said, you read what I wrote and medium stuff, but I, I get really tired of this idea of on both sides. There's people who are like, uh, I only eat American Mexican food. That's my favorite. That's the only kind there is. Or the opposite, which is I only eat real Mexican food and their definition <laughs> of real Mexican food can be anything. Um, and so it, there are things that I like to explain to people like Taco San Pastor, where I'm like, that's not Mexican. Like it is now, but it didn't start that way. It's It's been that way because you grew up with it as Mexican food. But that's the only reason because it didn't come from us. We took that idea. That's basically your your Lebanese spit. That's all that is. Like, the, look at the the tortillas. The tortillas do not look like anybody else's tortillas. Why? Because they're basically pita bread. It's basically, you know, bread from the Mediterranean. That's what it was built to be because you had thicker cuts of meat that you had on a spit, and yeah. that was just how it is. Like, it's never. People like to simplify things to make their uh, kind of experience um, the default, right? Like Mm -hmm. I read this great book. It's a short book, but it was about kind of modern masculinity. Uh, But one of the most important takeaways from it was the writer was explaining how the most problematic part of modern masculinity period um, is that the reason it is so toxic is because everybody who expresses their view on masculinity thinks that that is the default, right? So they grow up understanding that boys play sports, girls do makeup. This is my default. Mm-hmm. Girls wear dresses, boys wear pants, like all these default things. While that is just natural and human nature, you're born and learning things, and these are your bases, your foundational understandings, the problem becomes when your default becomes the understanding of the spectrum of the world, and that's the only way you'll look at things. So that world of default of saying, well, I had this food in Mexico, so it's Mexican food. If it's not that, then it's not real, is a bad default to have. 
And looking at the world, like we said before, like through one language, and that default is the only way it should be is a bad default to have. Because usually, what you'll find is if you do a little research, that default that you thought was so firm and so foundationally true, tacos al pastor or true Mexican food, isn't so easy. It's not so mm-hmm. it's a little more nuanced than that. There's a little bit more depth there. Yeah. And again, it's and it works the other way. Like, oh no, Mexican food doesn't have cheese all over it. Well, you know what? It sure does. Like all over Mexico, <laughs> there's tons of cheese on top of everything. And maybe you're not thinking of it in the same way as a Southern California crispy taco with lettuce, tomato, and cheese on top. But that doesn't mean that Mexican food doesn't have cheese on it. So, you know, those default positions that people come from aren't bad unless they use it as a uh, a rule for everyone else. Your defaults mm-hmm. are not everybody else's defaults. And so that food thing is where I like to kind of, it, it, it does almost seem political, but I'm trying to use the food part to make it apolitical, right? To make it un- understandable in that there are things in the world that, again, if you look more deeply and you scratch the surface and you get there, it's a nuanced thing. There, There's more there than you really think there is so like like i said mm-hmm. what people love like joking and and dissing nachos i'm like well i've talked to the grandson of the guy who created nachos and he was mexican oh, nice. so i know for a fact that nachos are mexican food they were created on the border by this man i his name is ignacio that's why they're called nachos because that's the short <laughs> that's the nickname for people named ignacio like he was mexican he did it in mexico does that not make it mexican food whether or not everyone in the United States eats them way more than anybody in Mexico does, that doesn't mean to me that it's not Mexican food. Same thing, like Caesar salad. Is that Italian? Well, it's actually from a restaurant, bar, hotel called Cesar, and that's where it comes from. It was created by a Mexican. Oh. So is that Mexican food or is it Italian food? I, I, again, scratch the surface. It sure gets really confusing and nuanced. <laughs> Nice. Yeah. So that's all. That's cool. And I like the the nachos thing, too. I was just picturing at Dodger Stadium. Uh, and pardon me, anyone offended by the Dodgers at this point, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but, you know, it was like the plastic tray with like a bowl for salsa. The delicious, bowl for delicious Rico's cheese. cheese. Yeah. But again, Rico's and cheese invented by a Mexican in Texas yeah. that became the concession staple is that Mexican food? It's pretty close. It's, I mean, <laughs> I, no one else created it. You know, it's, 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 it's very, Not exactly. Good. It's very nuanced. And then so to, to make those arguments, you know, you watch out, watch out if you don't know, maybe that's even better thing that's to take true. up. Like don't speak from a, pace, a position of power that you may not have. Yeah. You better be sure. Right. Do the research. You don't know. Like the crazy yeah. part, though, another one, much like Tacos al Pastor, is so a lot of people I've worked with, people I know that are from Mexico City, like they have their go tos to, to crap on American Mexican food, right? Some of them love mm-hmm. joking about chili con carne or oh, yeah. the hard shell taco. Well, my favorite thing with the hard shell taco is it's again super nuanced, right? Like the patent, well, let me go further back. The beginning of the hard shell taco that Americans know is from San Diego. And it was the guy who started Taco Bell had a burger restaurant down the street from a Mexican food restaurant that had been there for a few, you know, 
few decades. And it was like a Mexican family in San Diego that made Mexican food. He was really into franchise stuff. And he had learned from McDonald's that world. And that's why he started a burger place. And then he realized, well, there's already a McDonald's. So why don't I do Mexican food? So I'll try to do what they're doing. I'm going to do their stuff, but I'll do a McDonald's version of it, right? He went mm. to try to patent the like a machine to make shaped fried taco shells, as we know them. And what he ended up finding out was that there was a guy in New York City who had already patented it, and he was Mexican. Oh. So who's to blame for the hard shell Taco Bell taco? Well, it's not exactly the white guy who started it in San Diego. He had already been beaten to the punch by a Mexican guy in New York City, of all places. New York exactly. City? Exactly. Sorry. Get a rope. <laughs> the pace. Exactly. Pace picante sauce. Oh, my but God. So I'm like, so. You're, you're probably your favorite. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, this from San Antonio. But, you know, those kind of things are, again, like, your default may think, oh, American hard shell tacos. Disgusting. That's not, mm -hmm. that's not Mexican. But if I prove to you that a Mexican person had been doing it and had been doing it so much that they had to patent a machine to do it for them, and then they beat the guy from Taco Bell to that patent, tell me, is that Mexican food? That's a great origin story, I have to say, because, you know, there's all the Marvel stuff. I kind of want to know about the origin of different tortillas. Oh, well, like I have kicked around a book idea so let's not get too far down that road okay but, no 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 but like you know those the uh, the other story that you should look into i won't tell now unless i take up time with all my origin stories and my my marvel <laughs> mexican food superheroes but the guy who invented fritos also uh -huh. also invented cheetos what and it's this amazing story from oh. texas i'm like imagine this it's this is like it's like Dolly Parton writing I Will Always Love You and Jolene in the same day. Like this guy did Fritos and oh. then he did Cheetos. Like he basically changed the world for snack food. One guy. Yeah, that's okay. I'm going to look that up because, I mean, I wish he would have invented something to handle Cheetos fingers that you get after yeah. them. There's just commitment. That's like Butterfinger Butterfinger teeth yeah. or thing. I mean, there's all these things that happen. You just have to know you're oh, in man. and committed to eating the Cheetos with that one hand. Yeah. And yeah, that's true. That's true. You have to pick the hand because yep. that's not the one you want to nope. write with later. Um, oh, man, Miguel, this is great. So, all right. So um, do you have any, like, advice or mantra that you just like to share with people or that? Yeah, just that's basically the question. Um, I mean, I, I don't know if there's any in particular that I can think of off the top of my head. I mean, one, I'm a big believer in a memento mori uh, and that in and of itself remember that you're going to die is a great way to live. But in terms of, uh, of kind of business working and stuff, my thing is so much more like, don't do what you don't want to do. Mm. Like, it's just that simple. Like, I, I, like I said, there's been, for me, one of the realizations has been the times that uh, I've not been doing what I wanted to or felt terrible about doing what I was doing or having that stomach ache every morning going like, Oh, I don't want to go to work. I really don't want to go to work and do this work. The only thing stopping you from not doing that is you like you, you could probably make do. Yeah. And it's not that big of a deal. What no one is forcing you to do those things. And it's, it's just your fear or 
money or whatever it is, but all those things can be overcome or, or not even overcome. You just, just deal with it. Like, you know, I find after doing this for a, a while now, I found that there were all these kind of fake or not fake, but just kind of facile goals that I had laid for myself or that, you know, that I mm-hmm. thought were important and uh, creature comforts that I ex- ex- suddenly expected every day that I thought were necessary and not having those after a while made me realize kind of the worst of those things a lot more rather than, rather than want them more made me realize there was no point in wanting those. And so mm-hmm. I'm, I mean, I guess this is kind of goes tail hand in hand with that. Like my pinned tweet on my personal account is uh, James Vanderbeek from varsity blues telling his father, mm-hmm. I don't want your life. Yeah. And that's just it. Like, I talk to my friends and I'm like, that's great. I love that you have kids and you have a house and you have a car and you've done your job for 15 years and, and you're happy doing that. That's great. I don't want any of that. Like I watch things. I'm like, I don't want a car. I don't want a giant house. What would I do with a giant house? Why, why would I need that? I've lived in New York in a tiny apartment for 20 years. I don't know what I would do with 800 square feet. <laughs> that idea like, <laughs> but you know, it's like, and like I said, it, it suddenly became all these creature comforts that I had. It was like, I actually don't need to buy clothes ever again because of those 10 years that I worked and got paid really well. And I, I bought all the suits I'm ever going to need. I bought all the shoes I'm ever going to need. Like I couldn't mm-hmm. physically go through like all the clothes that I've bought. And I was like, oh, that's not a bad thing. Like I did it. I enjoyed it. It was when I could afford it. But now I'm like, I don't really need to go shopping for things like that. Like I don't need a new blank like i don't need a new iphone i've got the one i've got it works whenever i need to finally move i will but you know and so it becomes those kind of things where like there's the keeping up with the joneses thing that's so and it and for a while i thought it was a new york thing and then whenever i go and see people in other cities and talk to my friends in other places i'm like no you just have different keeping up with the joneses things that's fine suburb yeah like like a up or a middle class suburb it's in the, in the line to pick up kids. Yeah, it's it's like military yeah, I mean, industrial complex it. level of keeping up with the Joneses. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, again, like for, I have friends that change houses like every two or three years. And I'm like, mm-hmm. that can't be comfortable even. Like the one thing I hate more in the world ever than anything ever is moving. Yes. Moving is terrible. It's the worst thing ever. But people do it every two years because they're like, that's what we do. Like we buy a house. We work on it. We fix it a little bit, whatever. And then we move and we find a new house, yeah. a newer house, a bigger house, whatever. And that was another thing. And I guess it's kind of worked in that same world. I was dealing with a gaming company and they were all really cool people. And at one point I had to deal with their, like, a uh, their finance guy, their budget guy. And we were just, you know, mm-hmm. doing small talk. And he lived in New Jersey. It's a, a uh, youngish guy, like maybe late twenties, early thirties, but he had a wife and I think she, they had a kid coming. And so he was like, Oh yeah, I've got to go to the bank after this. And I was like, Oh, you know, is it house stuff? He's like, yeah, you know, we got to get the mortgage all figured out and whatnot. And he I showed me this binder, like a giant binder. And he was like, this is all the research I've done. Like all the information I have on every house, all the money situations on our side, what projections, like he had done his homework. Right. I was like, wow, that's amazing that you can do that and know how to do that. He's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not, it's my first time, but I'm going to get it right. So I was still working with these guys like a year and a year and a half later. 
Uh, and maybe six months, eight months later, I'm like, hey, you know, you know, how did that stuff go with your house? And I, did you move? And he was like, yeah, we moved, whatever. But he said, you know, I had a really weird experience with it. And I was like, what is that? He said, when I was dealing with the loan people, I had all the numbers. I had all the projections. Mm-hmm. I had the taxes. I had everything written down. I had done my research. And the loan guy, the mortgage officer, whatever, was saying, okay, that makes sense. I, I see all the numbers. All of this makes sense. But you know what you should do is you should pay for, because you can afford it, just throw in, maybe go a little bit higher, go another 200000 higher and get a bigger house. And the guy oh. was like, well, why would I do that? He's like, Look at the numbers. I have this exactly to what I can afford, what I want to afford, percentages, everything down for you know, X amount of years. And the guy said, well, here's the thing. You're going to want to move in a year, a year or two, right? So if you get a more expensive one now, then when you sell that, you'll get a more expensive one next time. And then again, you pay another over 200, 300. And then when you move from that house, you'll get another over 300. And you just keep going and just you know keep pushing. And he's like, but this is what I can afford. And this is what I want to pay for. And this is the size I want. And the guy was like, well, no, but you're going to want to upgrade every time. You're going to want to sell for more. Just go ahead and extend yourself, overextend yourself, you know, two or 300,000 for each time you move and you'll be in a better position. And he's like, but I have the numbers right here. I can't afford another $300,000. And he was like, it amazed me that somebody who is in the business of finance, he's in the business of numbers and the business of paying for things and not getting people to overextend themselves was telling me a person who had done all the homework and done all of the math and really, really like focused on this to overextend and to do something that I didn't want to do. And he was like, but I could tell that this is what everybody does. This -hmm. is what this man was used to doing and what everybody that came through his office did. And he had kind of the wherewithal just because of the math where he was like, I'm, I would never do that. that. That doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, yeah, that's kind of what we should do in life. Like, there's no point. Just look ahead, pay attention. Right. And just, you don't need that. You probably don't want that. It's just kind of something to keep your attention for the, the time being. Yeah. Well, and COVID's kind of, for me, I mean, I haven't had to get dressed that much. Absolutely. You know? Like, like I, mean, I made a joke. I was like, and... I did laundry and I only washed like six pairs of socks and I hadn't gone out. I yeah. hadn't washed clothes in like three months. And I was like, because I don't go anywhere. Like so much... Yeah, it's like so much Lycra because I ride my bike. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like I look way more athletic than I am based on the laundry, right? <laughs> That's what I wish yeah. for a while too. I was like, oh, I only have workout clothes. That's all I have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, okay, cool. Well, thank you. That's. I think that's good. And I think people get a lot out of that. So this is the fun five. So these are my last All questions. Right. So uh, what's the oldest T-shirt you have and still wear? And this is kind of inspired by my wardrobe because I'm always wearing concert T-shirts. As, as am I. Uh, so I know this one. This is an easy one, actually, for me. Uh, and this I'm only counting stuff that I've owned the whole time. I'm not counting vintage things that I've randomly picked okay. up along the way. I have a Happy Mondays T-shirt from the Pills, Thrills, and Belly Aches. Uh, era that I bought in 1989 and I still wear it and it's still in pretty good condition surprisingly but yeah that's definitely the oldest one I have I've got some well I've got some like from I I actually have to amend that now that I think about it because I have some maybe some kind of 
Oh no no that they, that that one came before those that probably came like eighty nine ninety but yeah so yeah I'm gonna go I'm gonna stick with the heavy Mondays then there's some other ones but they're probably a little bit younger younger all right cool uh, so one thing people are saying about 2020 is like every day is Groundhog's Day right it's just so if you had to pick a song so in the movie you know it's um I got you babe mm-hmm. if you had to pick a song to wake up every morning to at your from your alarm what would it be well I used it. This is probably very hard to wake up to, um, or it would make a, a jolt for waking up. But uh, I usually use this answer for if you had to only hear one song over and over again for the rest of your life, what would it be? Which is, yeah. Uh, it's Motorhead, Ace of Spades. Okay. It's just the perfect song. Cool. And it's just long enough. It's just perfect. But it's that's an Good. intense okay. way to wake up. <laughs> it's Yeah, it will be. and But, you know, at least she'll be up. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Um, speaking of waking up, uh, coffee or tea or neither coffee, coffee. All I right. Think and how do you take your coffee? Uh, black. I usually, my, if I like the platonic ideal for me is Italian coffee, but America, Americano style lungo. So mm. extra tall, but Italian level espresso level of, of intensity goes well with your Yes, exactly. 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 It's a, it's a, it's a crazy work. morning over here. <laughs> yeah, you're ready. You're ready to go. He's fired up. Um, okay. When was the last time you like laughed so hard you cried or just couldn't stop laughing? Like you just had this immense joy of, of I think joy is expressed in laughing. So we'll, we'll go with that. So I've been doing this thing recently. Well, I guess not recently, all year, uh, <laughs> where I told myself once we were going into lockdown, I was like, you know what? I, I feel like death is at the door. And I'm not, you know, not existentially worried about it, but, you know, it's, it's a thing, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I thought, you know what? I don't want to watch new movies and watch new TV shows that I don't know that might suck and waste my time on them. So I'm only going to watch movies that I know that I like already. And so I've been doing this thing, hashtag quarantine comfort classics, and mm-hmm. only watching movies I know I like. And I watch like probably eight to ten movies a week, if not more. Um, and big, while doing that, I've come across all these movies that I love and I, they still make me laugh in like incessantly. And so I, mm-hmm. maybe a month ago, rewatched Blazing Saddles and I love Blazing Saddles. One of my oh. favorite movies of all time, hands down. And so I watch it all the time anyway. So it's not even like it's weird, but every time I watch that movie, there are parts that just floor, floor <laughs> me still. Like one of them is like. If my girlfriend and I would just say it to each other out of nowhere, just say, somebody's got to go back and get a shitload of dimes. <laughs> <laughs> Those lines still still get me. Still get me. It's No, that's great. I, I started watching Frasier again. Mm-hmm. That's my favorite show and just kind of a nerd. And I probably had a weird crush on Kelsey Grammer in high school <laughs> now that everyone knows about now. Uh, thanks to this. But, um, but yeah, like some of the lines in there, or some of the faces I die. Yeah. So I totally relate and I just, yeah, it's great. So, all right. And the last one, um, who inspires you right now? Um, so I've got a good answer for this and this would be especially good for you being in London. Uh, Fergus Henderson, the guy who runs St. John. Oh, okay. One. So he had a terrible accident, car accident. So he's got like, so he had some, uh, like his skull was crushed and he's got these like kind of terrible scarring things, but he 
kind of took that moment and decided to do whatever he wanted food wise. And it wasn't the kind of thing that was trendy at the time when he started doing it. And he's a nose to tail guy. So he's all about kind of, you know, awful and all those things, which I love. But what I really like about him, what I really find inspiring, besides all the food stuff, that's that's kind of just icing. But is that he took this terrible accident, had a memento mori moment of like, I could have died. I want to do what I want to do with my life now. But he takes that to a level that I am so inspired by. Like a good example in the book, there's a, a, a lemon caraway seed cake that he calls mm-hmm. his Elevenses cake. And the idea of Elevenses is one of my favorite things in the world. Cause if you're not drinking at 11 AM, then you're probably wasting your life. Cause you should be able to have at least one glass of sherry at 11 AM just to keep that day going. Um, but that idea is kind of central to living his life now. Mm. It's like yeah. it's like if you look at Winston Churchill's um, drinking for the day, it, it's totally oh. worth looking up because it's hilarious and awesome. But it's like, imagine being Winston Churchill and having the weight of the world on your shoulders and like all these people that you're sending to death, like just a, a terrible like uh, responsibility. And he decided with that, he was going to enjoy every single day. So if you look at the list of the things that he drank throughout the day and when he drank, like that world of what, no matter what, his regimented world of diplomacy still had to Mm -hmm. focus on how much he ate and drank every day because that was a kind of a pure innocent happiness for him. I love that idea. Like, that's great. Like if we, if, and it, it may not be food for everybody, but if you find those things that make you kind of ecstatic for the day or for the moment and, and they, they keep you going, then do that. And then that you could take that from either a, a car accident or just age or whatever. A, another kind of undercutting of that is somebody asked Steve Martin why he moved to Los Angeles. And his wow. answer was the weather and every meal. And I was like, that's a good way to live your life. If that's the kind of like, I kind of agree, but I still live in New York, which is terrible weather. But like that idea that he made those choices and that those two things are the things that make him happy every day. Like, yeah, Mm -hmm. just focus on those two things. Find that, find that joy, wherever that comes from and make it that. So if it's having a sherry and cake at 11 a.m. every single day, that's great. If it's having, you know, two bottles of Paul Roger champagne at dinner and then finishing it with. Uh, you know, an Amaro and then finishing that with a scotch, like, hey, whatever that may be, you do your thing, man. You're Winston Churchill. No one can tell you that you're wrong. So kind of <laughs> that lifestyle, that that view in life really more than anything else is is super inspiring. And that, that that's kind of like get get the noise out of your life and just find those little things and you'll be all right. Nice. Well thanks so much. So is there anything you want um if someone is at the end of this and wants to look you up and I'll have links in show notes, but is there any specific thing you want them to look up or? I mean, for me, it's everything kind of pivots around my Instagram. So at Salsa Pistolero, S-A-L-S-A-P-I-S-T-O-L-E-R-O. Everything kind of focuses there and then it shoots off to Medium or Twitter or wherever. Um, But yeah, that's the easiest place to find me. And I always tell people, I'm very easy to find on the internet. You put my name in or put put in Salsa. There's only one of me or very few of me. That's pretty easy. 
Cool. Well, thanks so much, Miguel. It was great chatting with you. Yeah. All right. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for joining me this week. You can find out more about our guest in the show notes. The music you're probably moving to by now is by Joe Mafia. Find him on Spotify. That's Joe, M-A-F-F-I-A. And Rob Meckey is responsible for our visual design. You can find him online by searching for Rob, M-E-T-K-E. Thanks, Rob. Let us know who you'd like to hear from or about your own experiences defining yourself outside of work at More Than Work Pod on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Give us a follow. Or visit our website at RobbiaSaid.com. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to More Than Work. We'll be back next week with another guest. In the meantime, while being kind to others, don't forget to be kind to yourself. 